Thank you, Patty. I haven't heard that for a long time. Well done. Kind of pumps you up, doesn't it? Well, good morning. We're in the book of Revelation this morning. If you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll know that. And uh, it is known as kind of a different book. It's apocalyptic. It's strange. It's weird. But we're pretty safe until we get to chapter 4. We just kind of lightly get into things um, a little bit at a time. But chapter 4 will hit us pretty hard. But we're in chapter 1 today. And last time we looked at John's greeting to the church. And the Apostle John, we'll talk a little bit about him in just a, a few minutes. But you know he's old now when he writes this book. He's been a Christian for many years. He's seen a lot of things. He's experienced a lot of things. But his heart for God has not waned. And you can see the depth of his relationship. And we saw it last week in just his greeting to the church as he identifies Christ from so many different perspectives and so many truths of what Christ has accomplished. John is very, very much still in love with the Lord, even in his old age. Well, we have more to examine, so let's look at verses 9 through 20, and that's in Revelation chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's a mouthful of text. Let's look at um, first just the Apostle John and a little bit about his circumstances. I really appreciate how he immediately identifies himself with those that he's writing to in these churches. And he's their brother. He's their partner in the gospel. He partners with them in their victories. He partners with them also 
in their sufferings. When you read Scripture, you find that you have a greater identity in the family of God than any other identity that I'm aware of on the face of the earth. Because when you become in Christ, you are joined, we're all joined at the hip, so to speak. So the, God creates this family, He creates this kingdom, and there's, He holds us and binds us together. And so there's this incredible identity, and that was even in Noah's scripture that he shared about being, that, that would be so much uh, an, an intense peace and harmony among us so that when we sing, we're really singing in one voice because we are in agreement about the truth of who God is and what God has done for us. Because God is so true, when we are in Christ as the family of God, we, we attain to an identity, a strength of identity that is stronger than even the family uh, bond among us. The family bond is a gift from God. It's something he's, he's created for us. But the new family is on a different level. The family of God is on a different level. Acts 2.24 says of the early church that all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's what happens when we believe in Christ. That we, we have in common what the revelation that we've been talking about. We hold in common the most important truths that could ever be known by man. We hold in common where we've come from, where we're going. We hold in common what, how to interpret life and truth. And so that creates a bond among us. And so John doesn't put himself in some special bracket because of how God has so powerfully used him in the kingdom. He says, I'm your brother. And I'm your partner. I bleed like you bleed. I, I suffer. I mourn like you mourn. I rejoice like you rejoice. I'm not in some special bracket. But he also reigns as they reign. And to be partner in the gospel is primarily not about the suffering. But to say that we are partners in the kingdom of God is primarily identifying the fact that the king has come to earth and he is reigning and ruling. He is, bi- he is building his kingdom. So that's more of the, the victorious approach to the kingdom. The God is at work. Christ is at work. He's gaining victories and we're his servants. And as we live for him and as we glorify him, we are extending his reign and rule, not just in our hearts, but we're extending that by having an influence and being a witness to others. Because John was a faithful witness proclaiming the ways of God and the kingdom of God, he finds himself now on this little island in the Aegean Sea of Patmos, just west of modern-day Turkey. He is still reigning, though he is in exile. He's still reigning with Christ. So how do you reign with Christ in that way? You reign by not giving in to the flesh. You reign by not believing the lies of the enemy. So we can, re- we can reign with Christ. Our victories are in Christ. By believing truth. By not compromising what we know and hear. And by living according to the ways of God. And that can be done in any circumstance. And that's what John is doing. As a matter of fact we'll see that he is. He's in exile. But it doesn't stop him from worshiping God in such a mighty way. That God visits him. And as a result of that visit, we have the book that we're studying currently. So John is on this island. No, he's not vacationing. 
he's being persecuted for proclaiming the gospel that there, there, there comes a point in time where not everybody appreciates the truth. Not everybody wants to hear the gospel. And so for those that are willing to continue to proclaim it, you might meet some opposition. And so John met this opposition because of Christ. And towards the end of the century, we'll hear a little bit more about this as we work through this book, but towards the end of the century, we believe the book was written around um, AD 95. History shows us that persecution had taken place. We believe that originally under, well, you'll find that first the persecution was from Jews, but after that it it came from the Romans. And uh, Nero initiated it primarily, and in the mid of Mid, uh, middle of the century and towards the end of the century many believe that Emperor Domitian um, he came down with an even harsher persecution so I say that so that we realize that by the time many of these churches get this letter and they read about the persecution many of the saints have already died much blood has already been spilled even by the time they get this letter so there's John he's a brother he's a partner and he is worshiping the Lord on this island while he's in exile his faith is still strong he says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day most scholars agree that this was Monday it was the a day of worship there was a transition that took place in the New Testament Whereas the, they began worshiping on the Sabbath, which would have been a Saturday. But the church changed the Sabbath to a Monday, the first day of the week, to represent the resurrection of Christ. Because that's where the ultimate rest, the ultimate Sabbath, he's, Christ is the fulfillment of that. And so, not only do we rest from our physical labors, but Christ gives us rest for saving work. Because he accomplished salvation for us. And so there was this shift here that took place where the Christians began to worship and have their Sabbath and give themselves, devote themselves fully to the Lord on the first day of the week. So the Sabbath was not made obsolete in Christ. The Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ. So John's in exile. Uh, Reportedly, he was living in a little cave there on that island, worshiping the Lord And the Spirit came to him under those circumstances. And he says, write what you see. Second, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he lists the churches. So that's why we have the book because John was obedient to what the Spirit told him. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or we could say to make things a little easier, God expired, He expirated His words, and under that inspiration, the authors of Scripture wrote it. So we have this book. And it's interesting to me that God tells him not just to proclaim it, because there are times when the Lord tells His servants to proclaim, but He specifically says, John, write this down. The Write this down so that it can be sent to this, to these churches. And so these verses, we do have some symbols here. We'll work our way through these. 
And I want to use this as an opportunity to point out a pattern that is used in, in um, the Old Testament prophetic utterances and also in apocalyptic literature. There's a pattern here that we can follow and whenever possible, it doesn't always work in Revelation, but whenever possible we can follow this and it helps us understand things a little better. So this vision is in this typical pattern where first you have a vision. A vision is given. It's reported. It's written in and we see that in verses 12 through 16. And then there's always uh, the prophet's response to the vision. In this case, uh, basically falling down. That's a common response when you meet God in, under these circumstances and you feel the, the weight of the glory of God and you're in the presence of God. A lot of the, res- the common response is to fall on your face in the presence of God. We saw that in 17. And then the interpretation. So God is so kind to give visions and then also the interpretation which we see in 17b through So this pattern can help us understand. So I want to work through this and then apply it by focusing on a a particular statement that Jesus makes, I think, that will give us hope, will challenge us, but also give us hope and meet. So the vision is this. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his faith was like the sun shining in full strength. So this is when John turns to see, this is what comes into his head. This is the vision that he was given. His response is, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Daniel did the same thing when he was visited with a vision. In Daniel 8.17, he drops to the ground. They fall as dead, lifeless. It's it's probably a proper response when you're in the presence of God in that sense. And then we get the interpretation. Uh, fortunately, it's pretty easy when the Lord tells us what all or what most of these symbols mean. So the lampstands are the churches. So the lampstands, the churches, are God's light. And we already, we previously uh, understand that though there are seven literal churches, that they are also symbolic of all the churches. Seven is a number of completeness and fullness. They weren't the only churches that existed when John wrote this letter. There were many other churches. But they are literal and he speaks to them specifically to their situation as we will see soon. Not today but soon. But it also represents all the other churches. So churches are God's lamps. And what a beautiful picture that we have here as a church. God's church. That we are a lamp, we are a beacon, we are a light of God to the world. We are important to God, and we are important to the world. So so churches, one thing that you will see uh, in particular in chapters 2 and 3 is how important the church, the local church, is to God. The local church is extremely important to God. The local church serves God's purposes 
in all the areas around the world where the gospel has gone. He is so attentive to them. So they're his light. That's the lampstand here. So the light and the lampstand in this is temple furniture, the Old Testament. The lampstand was before the ark. And one of the priestly duties was to keep it lit, to fill the oil so that it doesn't go out. So there's light night and day. So it was before the presence of God, but also the presence of God was there. And so we have the church as, this is a symbol of the church being a light and a beacon to the world. The light of God. But not only are we the light of God, but we have the presence of God. The church is in the presence of God and God's presence is among His people when we dwell as we are dwelling this morning. It's a powerful symbol and a powerful picture. The seven stars, he says, that are in his right hand are seven angels. Now we learn something else that's kind of mysterious. The seven angels, the angels are um, they're messengers. They're sent ones. They're protectors. They're also executors of judgment. Basically, they're servants of the Lord. They do whatever they are commanded to do. And whatever they're commanded to do, they do well. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. So God uses them. He uses them to deliver His Word. He delivered His Word through angels on many occasions. Uh, Moses is one of them. He uses them. He sends them out to protect His people. He sends them out to deliver His people from harm. And so they're just ready to go servants. The energi- I picture them as an energizer bunnies. They're just so zealous to worship God, so zealous to do anything that the Lord bids. I get the, the picture that it is the highest privilege to be a servant of the Most High God through these angels. They're just very desirous to serve Him. And so they deliver and execute God's will. They deliver and execute God's wrath. And whatever they do, they do well. We'll see in Revelation how angels are constantly used. They're a part of the kingdom. They're part of the kingdom of God and they're not just up there. God uses them on this earth and He uses them on our behalf. So does every church, does this mean that every single church has its own unique uh, guardian angel, if you will? I would not take it that far. I wouldn't build a theology on that. It's not enough information, I don't think, to... To, go, to take it that far and, and write a book about it. But I think it absolutely tells us that God employs angels to look over us, to look over all the local churches, all the true churches. There, there's kingdom powers that are attentive to us. And how they work, we don't always know. Hebrews tells us you might be entertaining angels and not even know it. Well, you might not even know it. But... That doesn't lessen the fact of how much activity takes place in this realm. The kingdom is so busy. The kingdom of God is so busy here on earth. So they're at work. They're powerful. They are very powerful when they work for us. And they are very powerful when they work against us. And there are times when God sends angels to work against people. Christ, He's the Son of Man, a very common title for Jesus in Scripture. He's wearing robes and sashes. It symbolizes uh, His priestly duties. 
but also his kingly duties. He's a priest and he's a king. The priests in the temple would uh, trim the lamps. They would fill them. And so we have Christ walking among the churches. Christ ministering to the churches. And just as the priests kept the candles burning correctly, so we trust the Holy Spirit to keep us on track. To keep us trimmed, if you will. Or as John puts it, Jesus puts it in John, uh, pruned so that we are the most effective. He has very white hair signifying wisdom. Wisdom of all wisdoms. It's not just white, it's glowing white. So if white hair is wisdom, the glowing white is like the off the charts wisdom. Eyes like fire symbolizing piercing judgment. And so we, we get this vision of Christ, the Son of Man, that can see everything. He can just look right through us. He knows the intentions of our hearts. He can just slice and dice every thought and understand every motive. He understands our thoughts before we do and better than we do. A lot of times we can't figure out what we're trying to communicate. We don't know what we want to do with our day. We don't know our motives all the time. They can be so mixed. But he who has eyes of fire sees right through us. Judges us very accurately. His feet were bronze refined in a furnace. Which, you know, refined in a furnace represents that purity. You keep refining and refining and refining until you get the absolute purest product. And his voice was like the roaring waters. In other words, it was very, very loud. If you have ever, I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I've heard that the roaring waters of, of the falls is just incredibly loud. It gets your attention kind of loud. And that's what John is signifying here. It's, it's loud, it's unmistakable, it's very, very authoritative and commanding voice. It's no wonder that John fell to the ground under these circumstances. You know, he's, he's under the weight of the, the glory of this vision that he's just seen, this pure, all-wise, holy being commanding. And he, he even, even angels are his servants. And so under the weight of the substance of God and the glory of God, he falls down as dead, knocks him and shocks him down, if you will. And I think it's the idea... When we, get, when we have a proper understanding of who God really is, that we realize how small we are. And it's almost like what the experience that Peter said, um, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. What do you do with that? Well, the, the, those that were experiencing it, a lot of times they just fell to the ground, face to the ground. They felt so unworthy in the presence of he who is so worthy. So it's a powerful passage. There's a lot of symbolism here. But I think you get the picture of the glory of the Son of Man. But I want to close by applying a description of Christ that I think will serve us well. And it's something that we read and it, and it affects us, but like you get it, but I don't know that it's a phrase that I think it's worth to camp on for a little while and evaluate our lives even through this description, <clears throat> excuse me, of Christ. 
17b, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. Then he goes on to say, I'm the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. The same right hand that held the seven stars reaches down and lays it on John's shoulder. That's compassion. Isn't it amazing in the midst of this vision? That compassion comes. But here's what I want to focus in on. He says to John, fear not. So why is John not to fear? Well, it's, the answer is because it's who Jesus is. You, we have to consider who Jesus is. We have to know the, the right Jesus, the true Jesus, in order to know what to fear and what not to fear. And Jesus is not to be feared in that kind of way because He is the beginning of, He is the first and the last. So as we think about life, as we think about what Jesus is going to share or disclose in the visions that John hears in Revelation, and they're scary. What, how Jesus describes the persecution and even the, the cycles of history that come and what some believers will face in life. It's very scary. How John des- describes the demonic activity that's taken place. That not only are the heavens bustling with ange- angelic activity, but they're bustling with fallen angels as well, demonic activity. And there's so much at risk and so much at stake. But the way Jesus identifies himself is intended to be the comfort and the strength and the stance, you might say, of what believers need to be able to endure all of the evil activity and all of the opposition that we may face. So he identifies himself as I am the first and the last. I'm not just the beginning, but I'm the beginning and the end. So I want to camp here for a little while. As you know, this was written towards the end of the century and there was persecution taking place. What kind of persecution? Well, when the Jews began the persecution, uh, it was mostly Jewish style, so stoning to death. But when the the, um, Romans got involved, you know, they're more brutal people. They're all about the, the, the dominion part of it. And so there were Christians that were tied to horses and, and pulled asunder. Uh, there were Christians that were impaled on stakes while they were still alive. There were those that were uh, burned alive. There were those that had holes um, drilled in their skulls with hot molten lead poured in it. Just absolute brutal persecution. You, you might even say that the ones that were thrown to the lions got off easy compared to some of the other suffering that took place. Much of this is a a matter of history. But I think more important is how did they endure this? Like how do you do that? And the Romans were, were befuddled as well at times because they have this group of people that are being persecuted because they wouldn't worship the, primarily because they wouldn't worship the emperor as Lord. We'll get into that when we look at the churches. We study the churches. They refuse to worship him as Lord. You're a believer. You believe in one God only. That's it. And so they want to put these people down. They want to stop this, this uh, disobedience from spreading. And so they have to 
They have to stamp it out and persecute it. But how do these people not only receive their death sentence and refuse to recant, but also in some cases do it singing praise songs to God and do it with looks of peace in their hearts and their minds? what, What makes people tick like that? How is that even a possibility? So not only do do we need to not fear, but we can have even peace and joy, if you will, in the midst of a world that might hate us and persecute us, in the midst of a world where we don't get our way. That's the question. Church Father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed, and so the more blood that was spilled, the more the faith grew. Because of the stance and the depth of the faith. So what is in them to cause such a, I guess, a surreal reaction? Well, it can't be just grit, right? I mean, grit's a great thing. Grit has its place. But it can't be just human grit. It's got to be something else there. Because we're talking about persecution, not just burly men. Christians of all ages, of all genders, were persecuted, put to death, and some of them even with joy on their faces. It goes beyond just mere grit. Some were too young or little to have that kind of grit. So what did this letter give them? Again, this is a letter that was intended to enable believers to make it through these times with their faith intact. It's not just information of the things in the past and the future. I think it's the vision that Christ gives him of himself, of the supremacy of Christ. So what that means is Christ describes himself when, when he says, I'm the beginning and the last, the first and the last. I, I not only overcame death, I didn't just beat death, which is one of the greatest things that mankind has to fear because we're mortal. But I have the keys to it. I control it. I reign and rule over it. And he gives us such a vision of the supremacy of Christ so that if we maintain that view and that mindset of how incredible and awesome and, and kind he is to his people, then we hold the vision, the truth, what He gives in our hearts. That's what enables us, I believe, to withstand the onslaughts of not just persecution, but even everyday trials in life. The first and the last, in verse 8, He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the the beginning and the end. I'm I'm the A letter and the Omega, the first and Alpha and Omega, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm not the Beta the B, I'm the A, and I'm the end. So, apparently if we can see Jesus in this light as the beginning and the end of all things, then we can indeed face what might come our way and endure it to the end. So let's just explore this for the, for the time remaining here. Jesus as the beginning. Our Christmas message in John 1, 1 was that Jesus was... Uh, the Word, and He was with God in the beginning, and Jesus is God, John 1, one, and then verse 14, He says, He's the Word became flesh. 
what John, John gave us, the uh, spiritual version of the Christmas story, the theological version of the Christian story. It's important to know that Jesus was not created, that He has always existed. So if He's the beginning, then we find our existence in Him. He, he started all of these things. That's the, do, the doctrine. Jesus is God. He's eternal. And it's important because if everything comes from Him, then we come from Him. So we find ourselves in Him. We have to plant ourselves. We have to trace ourselves back to our origins, which would be in Christ. And when we find ourselves or view ourselves as having our origin in Christ, that we, we see it prevents us from taking other rabbit trails of where we came from because if we understand where we are coming from or where we came from, then we have a better idea where we're supposed to be and where we're headed. So our origins are find, found in Christ. This is one of the biggest questions that man asks of himself. Where did I come from? How did I get here? What am I supposed to be doing? This is something that has plagued mankind from the beginning. And it's a great question, and we get the answer in Scripture. Now, unfortunately, it's natural to start with ourselves. We want to start... We, we, we're taught in our culture to start with ourselves. But we can't provide the answers of our origins when we weren't there. and We don't know. We do not have them outside of Christ. So our worldly philosophy teaches us to begin with self. Look to your own heart. Whatever you think is probably right. It's probably the right answer. But then when we suffer, you notice that when people suffer, they realize that their worldview isn't working for them a lot of times. They realize that looking into their own hearts isn't solving their problems. They're looking for other answers. If we don't start with the truth, we're not going to end with the truth. Where do we turn for answers but to the Alpha and the Omega? In the beginning was God. We cannot truly know ourselves if we do not no, God. And then Jesus comes along and says, actually, to properly know yourself, you have to lose yourself. You have to see your life in a totally different picture of what the world paints or what you might be tempted. And that is, the world revolves around you and you're in the center of it. But we come from God and we are His servants. So when we understand the beginning in that, light it's not as confusing we know where to start so timothy keller says what is your alpha point how did you start did a personal creator design you or are you an accidental allocation of atoms depending on what you believe will totally determine the way you go about working through your problems if you are a chemical accident then you make up your own rules you'll determine your own meaning You'll derive your own truth. You'll make up your own moral rules. But if you were created by a personal creator, then you have to discover his truth. You have to discover meaning that was put there before. So when Christ says he is the beginning, he's the first. So we are identifying with him. We are placing ourselves. That means that everything, if he came first, Rather than what we're taught, we're taught to orient everything around ourselves. If he came first, then everything orients around him. 
Everything was created for him. Everything was designed for him to fit into a world and a kingdom that he created that will fulfill his will. So if we're honest with ourselves, how can we deal with our problems if we, and how can we stand and, and face persecution if we're just not really sure how life works, if we're not sure if it's worth it? Jesus is also the last, so he's the beginning and he is the last. So what he means by that is that everything that was created for his glory, including ourselves, it's on this trajectory, it's it, is all, it will all find its end in Christ. Everything will fulfill the purpose for which it was created. So all of history, according to Scripture, is moving to a specific end. It will have a culmination in Christ, where Christ will reign and rule over all things, and everything will be in subjection to Him. That's what's happening now in His kingdom, is that He is... He is reigning and ruling and putting all things under His subjection as the King. That's where history is headed. That's the end. So everything fits into Him. Everything is about Him. We were built to fit into Him. We were built to orient our lives around Him. And that's what Scripture teaches us, right? And constantly challenges us. You want to think about yourself. You want to, you want to build your own little kingdoms but you seek me. All the other things will be added unto you, Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So we are to reorient our lives. That's what it means to become a Christian. You no longer do things the way you used to do. You totally reorient your lives around God, the triune God. And now his will, his desires become our desires. So Jesus must be first And Jesus must be last because that's how we know how to live in the middle. That's how we know what we're supposed to be doing now. But sometimes we have to ask ourselves, what is that one thing in life? That one thing in life that I love so much, that brings me so much meaning and so much purpose that I just don't think I could live without it. That one thing needs to be Christ. If we are to orient our lives around Christ, be totally devoted to Christ and in love with Christ, then that He needs to be that one thing, our all in all. Sometimes we're guilty to some degree or another of using God or worshiping God as a means to an end. Instead of worshiping God as the all in all end of all things. And what I mean by that is because God is good and gracious and He gives us good gifts. Sometimes we might pray to Him and worship Him and be sold out to Him because He's given us the things we want. I want a family. I want a spouse. I'm lonely. I want friends. I want children. I badly want children. All these things. That we want God can be a means because He's good and kind and He's the creator of all things to give us these good gifts. But when we don't have these things, where's God in our lives? A lot of times people walk away because they thought God was there 
And he was going to use his powers to give us all the things that we wanted in our lives. God is not a means to the end. We want to work ourselves to where we enjoy his gifts. But the, the main most thing that we love and adore and we could, we could do without everything else. But if I have Christ, that's all I need. You see where this is headed? Because when persecution comes to this degree, we very well, and there are Christians that are and have and will continue to lose everything they loved in this earth. All the good gifts that God gave them, gone. Now that hurts. What do you do with that? They didn't curl up. They didn't quit. They pressed on because what they had was the most important thing. You can take my life. You can take my house. You can take my job. I got Christ. That's what I need most. If I have Him, then all the other things, one way or other, will work out. That's the mindset that we are to dig in deep and to develop in our Christian lives. Do we serve God to get God? Is God the end? Is God the greatest treasure? Or do we serve God to get the other treasures that we really want more than God? Do we suffer for God to get God? As the Apostle Paul says, to, to, to enter in and rejoice in the sufferings, to fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. Paul got more of God in that sense. He identified Him and dug deeper. Do we suffer for God to get God? Or to get God to give us what we want? And I think the teaching is that Jesus has to be our first and our last. Elizabeth Elliot, a very famous, well-known missionary, wrote a novel about a woman who was a Bible translator um, in South America. And everything just went wrong. Everything went terribly, terribly wrong. She went with a desire to serve God, a desire to translate the Bible. It all falls apart, and at the very end, it just absolutely all comes to ruin. It's called No Graven Images. And on the final page, she says, God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If on the other hand, he was God, he freed me. So if if God was my accomplice, if I was using God to, to, to get the ministry and the results that I wanted, it was a failure. But if my heart was to find God and to know God deeper and to have God, then He freed me from the other idols, the other things that are second best. Life is filled with problems. What do we do with these things? We seek God first. He's the solution. All the other things will be added unto us. God is the solution and leads us to the other things. So if Jesus is the first and the last, then he has to be everything in the middle. He's in the middle. Isn't it interesting that we, we, for the most part, live in a nation, we can't talk enough about rights today. We can't talk enough about justice. We're very adamant about these things. They're very important. Rights and justice and, and values. And yet, we don't have a purposeful meaning. It's just accidental. 
we don't really know where we're going. It just ends. So you have no meaning or purpose in your beginning and no true meaning and purpose in your end. But all of a sudden we got in the middle. We have all this meaning and everything matters. How does that work? We just decide these things. God needs to matter more than anything or we will not find what we seek if we indeed were created to enjoy God, to love God and enjoy Him forever. It reminds me of when I was a kid, I loved to play in streams. and Sometimes I would rearrange them a little bit so I could carve a little canoe with my Boy Scout, Boy Scout pocket knife and and I would create little rivers with it, or little rivers within streams. You take a rock and you put it in that stream, and then the whole stream just reorients it around that rock because it can't go through it. It's got to make a new path now. And when I think about these words, I see that becoming a Christian is constantly making that new path. It's constantly reorienting, reorienting ourselves Around the rock, Jesus Christ, who is real and true and and substantial. And we want to work around that and live around that and fit everything that we are, our dreams and our desires, around Christ. John falls dead in the midst of the glory of God. When the time comes, we need to know what's worth it. We need to know what we love the most. We need to know what we are willing to to live with and what we're not willing to live without. It's because we have Jesus. And if we have Jesus, then we already have everything that we need. And if Jesus is the main treasure of our lives, then we already have everything that we want. That way we're not surprised by suffering. Suffering will teach us what we really value. May God bless the preaching of His Word.